for bringing the church into this building this morning. My name is Jamie, one of the pastors here. Excited to have you. Uh, if it's your first time with us, uh, you've come uh, at, a, at a really good moment uh, in terms of where we are as a church. Uh, we're currently working our way uh, through the book of Hebrews right now in a series entitled Jesus is Greater. Um, if, you've, if you've never read the book of Hebrews before, it's a pretty fascinating book of the Bible. Um, it shows how the Bible is not uh, just some book of loosely put together stories that are kind of piecemealed together in, in a loose fashion. Rather, the Bible is a tapestry that tells one overarching a beautifully interwoven story of redemption with Jesus as the hero of the entire thing. You actually see that uh, interwoven story of redemption put on full display in this particular book of the Bible. And so um, as you're spending time in the New Testament, you actually kind of get a crash course on the Old Testament at the same time. Uh, at its heart, the book of Hebrews, we've talked about this for weeks now, it's a warning, it's an appeal. It's written to a group of people declaring, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, um, but they're being pressured from the outside to abandon Christianity, to revert back to uh, the Old Covenant, to, to revert back to the law, the Old Testament priesthood, the sacrificial system, the temple. Um, this letter is meant to be a word of exhortation, which is why toward the end of the letter, in uh, chapter 13, verse 22, you get this language from the author, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. It's a warning, which is why you have the phrase, bear with. Warnings can be found throughout uh, the entire book of Hebrews, we've actually looked at a couple of those thus far, and we're going to encounter one of the, the most sobering of those warning, warnings in just a moment. Um, but we're also going to encounter one of the most glorious promises in all the book of Hebrews this morning as well. And, and here's the beauty of it. Both the warning and the promise are God's grace to us. I think we'll see that as we dive in. And so if you have a, a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. That's where we'll start off this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles. If you don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's difficult to understand, just go ahead and take that Bible home with you as the church's gift to you. If you're looking up on the screen and it's your first Sunday, you're probably going, great. What have I gotten myself into when the title of a sermon is Don't Be Immature? Um, so let me just give a couple of disclaimers here. Number one, I wore my pink shirt to try to soothe you. I'm going to do that every time we get into a warning passage in the book of Hebrews. So just stare at the pinkness of the shirt if you need to be comforted at any moment. The second thing is we're all in this together um, and, and, and we'll be okay. We'll get through it and we'll actually see, I think, that um, these verses are God's kindness to us as we work our way through. And so let me just do this. Let me pray for us and we'll jump in and we'll, we'll get going this morning. God, when we say thank you for your word, I think if we're honest, uh, there, there are parts of us that want to say thank you for parts of your word. Um, and there are parts that uh, if we could uh, just kind of set them aside, uh, remove them, uh, we would uh, be content at times to do that. And uh, it's quite possible that, that this is one of those passages. It is indeed one of the most sobering, if not the most sobering warning in all the New Testament. Uh, and yet, uh, you have much to, uh, to teach us. Um, and I do believe that you want to use this morning's passage very intentionally to draw us near to the throne of grace. And so, I pray that you would do that. I pray that uh, the warning would sober us and the promise uh, would assure us and comfort us. God, would you do that by the power of your spirit this morning? Would you move in our hearts in a very powerful way as we dive into your word? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. 
Um, as it is with, with much of God's word, uh, Hebrews 5 and 6 hold both the weight of judgment on the one hand and the miraculous light of hope in the truth of God's promises on the other hand. They, they seem like extremes, and maybe they are, but they're not contradictory to each other. It's love that warns us to hold fast our hope so that we don't fall away and face judgment, and it's love that offers us assurance through Jesus who went before us to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf. It's with love that the author of Hebrews urges this church that we're going to read about in just a moment to grow up, to learn to walk in righteousness so that they'll know the truth of God's promises as the sure and steadfast anchor of their souls. Going back to last week, um, the author of Hebrews has been explaining this deep and beautiful truth about Jesus as our great exalted high priest. And it seems as though he's going to continue that explanation in verse 11 as we pick up. It says this, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. He's talking about the priesthood of Jesus, which he's going to get into in more depth in the coming chapters. We'll see that actually for the next several weeks. But he stops to acknowledge that where he's going in his explanation is going to be a little hard to follow. It's going to be hard to follow because he's speaking to some dull, sluggish hearts. It would be as if in the middle of a sermon I'm preaching, and all of a sudden I just hit pause and start going, Hey, Wake up. Hey, look, look at me. If I did that, that would be a little awkward, right? But that's, that's kind of what he's doing here. He's saying, I need to tell you about Melchizedek. We'll get there next week and how Jesus' priesthood is superior to his. And it's not that the subject matter is really all that overwhelming, which if you've ever read anything about Melchizedek, you're going, are you kidding me right now? Like, it's not all that overwhelming. I think it is a little overwhelming intellectually speaking. But what he's saying is that you need to wake up out of your spiritual slumber. That's the problem here. You've become spiritually lethargic. You've become apathetic to the gospel. And it's not just a call to wake up, but to grow up. Look at verse 12. He says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It's kind of a grotesque picture that the author of Hebrews paints here. It's a, it's a picture of adult infants who are still nursing. And make no mistake about it, the language is strong on purpose. It's meant to have a sobering effect. No grown man or woman wants to come face to face with the reality that he or she still has a thumb in mouth, right? Healthy things grow. The Christian life is is no different. The Christian life should be marked by growth. Just like children develop and reach certain benchmarks, so do Christians. Um, I I remember uh, when our oldest daughter, her name's Lanier, uh, she was right around her one-year birthday, and, uh, and my wife, one morning, uh, brought out the plastic fork and spoon and had determined that we were going to teach our daughter how to use eating utensils. And, and we kind of disagreed on that. I was thinking to myself, this is just going to be a train wreck. This is going to be a cleanup job. You know, this, she, this kid starts off with 12 Cheerios on the spoon and loses 11 on, of them on, on the way to her mouth. And then the 12th one is a roll of the dice as to whether it's actually going to get in her mouth or not. Um, but my wife was convinced that, and, and this was her response. Some of you have shared this with before. She, she said, but I don't want our kids to get to middle school and not be able to use a fork and a spoon. <laughs> and I remember responding, did you have that kid in your middle school lunchroom? Like, did anybody sit by that kid who on the first day of sixth grade walked in, sat down with Trey in hand and said, 
yeah, I just, I don't know. None of us encounter that, right? Like healthy things grow. That's the point of this passage. It's not that the author of Hebrews is arguing that they should all be seminary professors by now. It's that they should simply have a grasp of the most fundamental truths about God and the gospel. And not just an intellectual grasp, but the practical outworking of that very gospel in their lives, which is why you have the language, uh, I believe it's in verse 14, of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That one of the benchmarks of growth in the Christian life is increasing ability to distinguish based on the teaching of God's word what to do in moment by moment decisions for the glory of God. Al Mohler in his commentary says it this way. He says, we negotiate many of our day-to-day decisions on the basis of an intuitive discernment. To put it another way, discernment is like a theological grid or a worldview that helps us make instant moral and theological judgments about our circumstances. We would never get anything done if we made every decision on the basis of sheer intellectual reconstruction. And then he goes on to give this helpful example. He says, imagine a heart surgeon who has to stop and rethink cardiology in the middle of a surgery. Imagine how disastrous it would be if he needed to consult a textbook every time he entered the operating room. No one wants that kind of surgeon. We want surgeons who can use the intuition they have developed over years of dedicated practice. This need for discernment applies not only to surgeons, but also to Christians. It's this growing ability based on the teaching of God's word to face the ethical dilemmas that come our way in any given moment. Rather than having to be told what to do like a kid who who has no idea of the appropriate response and looks at mom or dad asking what to do, we become more and more capable of making well-judged moral decisions as we grow in the Christian life. It's also this this growing ability based on the teaching of God's word to discern, discern and interpret culture. And so it's one thing to come back around over and over again to these, these major pillars as you walk through the Bible of the story of creation and the story of the fall and the story of redemption in Jesus and the story of restoration of all things in the end when Jesus returns to make everything sad untrue. It's one thing to have to come back to those teachings over and over again to kind of to get them ingrained. It's another thing to sit with a film in front of you and go, there are traces of the fall. I see it right there. There's a a story, there's a highlight of redemption there. There, There's a pointing to a future hope in this film that I'm staring at right now that reminds me of the things to come as uh, we see in the scriptures in in the the final chapter, the restoration of all things. It's one thing to to sit down and, and kind of carve out and understand various worldviews. It's another thing to turn on the radio and to go, I just can't get away from it. I just want to mindlessly listen to a song, and yet again, I'm faced with this worldview that rises to the surface because I'm being trained to discern things as I engage the culture around me. It's this growing ability to take the truth of the gospel and wield it in the everyday rhythms of life. And so it's one thing we talk around here, if you're new, we talk a lot about things like root idolatry and and functional saviors like what's going on in our hearts deep down um, that the gospel speaks to in a unique way Um, what are we looking to for rescue um, for deliverance when it's not Jesus it's one thing to come back and go what what did you mean by those that that root idolatry language again or what did you mean by the the functional savior language it's an altogether different thing to wield that weaponry to go, man, I know what the root idol issues of my heart are and I know how the gospel speaks into that and I'm warring against that. Two very different things. The author of Hebrews is concerned about the dullness of hearing of those to whom he's writing. 
And so he goes on to say in verse one of chapter six, he says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. That's the basics of salvation, repentance and faith, turning from our own works which cannot save us and turning to Jesus in faith. Instruction about washings and the laying on of hands. That's the basics of the ceremonial. That's cleansing rites and prayer. Remember, this is a crowd with a highly Jewish background. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. That's the basics of the end times, the last things. So the author of Hebrews wants them to to move beyond, to build on these foundations. To leave is not to abandon. If you abandon the foundation, the entire building crumbles, right? To leave is to build on. Again, healthy things grow. If growth in the gospel is absent, that's probably a really good diagnostic for tending to our souls. And he goes on to say in verse 3, and, and this we will do if God permits, that God gives us sustaining grace to grow. We're dependent upon God's grace for spiritual growth. We can't do this alone. We need him. And going back to last week, here's the good news. He knows that we need him. He invites us to confidently draw near to his throne of grace. He offers us mercy and grace to help us in time of need. Now beginning in verse 4, the author of Hebrews is going to present us with some of the most difficult verses in all of the New Testament. One of the most sobering warnings in all of the Bible. He says this beginning in verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned." That's heavy, right? Look at the pink shirt. Um, What's at stake in these verses is not simply fatherly discipline and heavenly rewards. We're talking about eternal judgment. Look at the the contrast between the two farmlands here in verses 7 and 8. Both lands have everything they need to bear fruit, but one land doesn't bear fruit because the land is dead. The two farmlands represent two kinds of people. One is fruitful, producing a crop, and the other is fruitless, bearing thorns and thistles. And according to verse 8, the destiny of the fruitless field is one of curse and destruction. That's the language of, of eternal judgment. That's the danger that the author of Hebrews has in mind as he presents us with this warning, which brings up another question. To use the language of verse 6, what does falling away involve? Looking again at the example of the two farmlands in verses 7 and 8, we're talking about drinking the rain but bearing no fruit. To use the language of verses 4 and 5, we're talking about having once been enlightened but bearing no fruit. We're talking about having tasted the heavenly gift but bearing no fruit. We're talking about having shared in the Holy Spirit but bearing no fruit. We're talking about having tasted the goodness of the word of God but bearing no fruit. We're talking about having tasted of the powers of the age to come, but bearing no fruit. Falling away involves experiencing all of those raindrops of God's grace, you might say, using that farmland word picture, and bearing only thorns and thistles. Has less to do with doctrine and far more to do 
with the heart. Going back to the example of the wilderness generation in Israel, we talked about this a few weeks ago. What was it that ultimately kept them out of the promised land? It was that they hardened their hearts in rebellion, right? It was that their hearts were hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. A hardened heart like the hardened earth can only produce thorns and thistles. Falling away has everything to do with the hardened heart, which is what I think helps to make sense of the strong language that the author of Hebrews uses in verse 6, that those who turn away are crucifying once again the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. It's a joining of the masses who cried out, crucify him. It's treating Jesus' blood as having no significance other than that of a common criminal. And I would argue that it's far more than doctrinal in nature. Coming back to this hardness of heart issue, it's possible to treat Jesus' blood as significant not only in a doctrinal sense, but also in a practical sense. It happens when a person embraces an easy legalism or a cheap grace. Coming back to a quote from a few weeks ago, Karen Jobes, I shared this one. She says this, The author of Hebrews, both God himself as the ultimate author and the human author, whoever that may be, wants Christians to be warned in terms that do not permit either an easy legalism or a cheap grace. Believers are called to nothing less than living with eyes fixed on Christ from conversion to death. To make a decision for Christ means to adopt an ongoing stance of faith throughout one's life, not just for a momentary utterance. A hardened heart like the hardened earth can only produce thorns and thistles. Easy legalism is a thorn and cheap grace is a thistle, I would argue. Which brings up another question. Can this falling away happen to born-again followers of Jesus Christ? Can this happen to those who have been justified? Can this happen to those who have been adopted into the family of God? Can this happen to those who have been sealed by the Spirit of God? I mean, after all, we're talking about some pretty strong language here in verses 4 and 5, right? We're talking about those who have once been enlightened. We're talking about those who have tasted the heavenly gift. We're talking about those who have shared in the Holy Spirit. We're talking about those who have tasted the goodness of the word of God. We're talking about those who have tasted of the powers of the age to come. Is it possible for a born-again follower of Jesus Christ to fall away from the living God in eternal judgment? My answer to that question is no. And I'll explain the why behind that in just a moment. But two things that I think are important to acknowledge here. Um, Number one, uh, I think... Some of the theologians who argue on both sides of the spectrum here are far smarter than me and will inhabit the new heaven and earth. And I think when you're a church that champions the present tense um, significance of the gospel in everyday living, you tend to draw people from both sides. And so um, we'll get here as we kind of move through this, this sermon, but, but my hope is, and I actually believe that, that a passage like this can actually unite more than divide if we understand what the takeaway truly is. The second thing is this. I think it's critical to establish a distinction here that though many have good intentions in using the language of of once saved, always saved, I'm not sure that's the most helpful language that the church has embraced along the way. Um, that, that kind of language has a way of encouraging people to spend the bulk of their time looking in the rearview mirror, to, to focus on the authenticity of a past tense profession of faith at the expense of present tense perseverance in the faith. It can, it can and oftentimes does create what I would call a culture of easy believism, this, this thinking that as long as I can point back to an authentic conversion experience, it matters very little how I live in the present. 
Let me just say this. If you're, if you're one who believes that a person uh, can lose his or her salvation and part of your frustration is the present tense apathy that exists in the church, the present tense sluggishness of heart that keeps pointing back to a, a past tense profession of faith, you, you and I share in that same frustration together. And I would argue that the author of Hebrews shares in that frustration. It's the very thing that he warns against over and over and over again. Spiritual drift. Don't go there. Don't neglect your salvation. Don't become dull of hearing. Don't become sluggish of heart. And he's going to go there again before we get to the end of this letter. The book of Hebrews is an exhortation to persevere, to keep fixing our gaze on the superior Son of God, to keep seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. Which is why I'm more inclined to embrace the language of the, person, the perseverance of the saints. That, that doctrine, it's a, it's a two-part doctrine. And, and I think the second part of it is just as significant as the first and keeps us very balanced. The first part of that doctrine declares, All who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere to the end. Practically everyone who believes you can't lose your salvation would affirm the first part of that doctrine. However... The, the second part, again, I just said it, is critical. It, it helps to make sense of the very warning passages that we've been looking at for weeks now. It's not just that all who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere to the end. It's also that only those who persevere to the end have truly been born again. Our perseverance in the faith, going back to verses 7 and 8, is the fruit in the field that shows the soil of our hearts to be truly alive. There, there are... There are a number of verses outside the book of Hebrews that we could probably look at, and, and all of those who land where I land are probably going, dude, go to Romans 8, go to Philippians 1, let's do this thing. And, and we're not, I'm not going to do that, because I actually think it's a little more helpful to stay in the book of Hebrews to, to make the case for what I'm arguing for this morning. If you go to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, the author of Hebrews says this. We saw this a few weeks ago. He says, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Let me read that verse again. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Notice that he doesn't say we will come to share in Christ if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It says we have come to share in Christ. In the original language, that's a, that's a completed action in the present tense. That we have come to share in Christ a completed act of, of being united to him if we hold fast our confidence to the end. So let me, let me paraphrase this in its simplest fashion. A, present, or, excuse me, a past tense sharing in Christ has actually happened if we persevere to the finish line. Hebrews 3.14. In other words, our holding firm, our persevering in faith doesn't establish our sharing in Christ. It verifies our sharing in Christ. Our holding firm is the, the fruit in the field that shows that something actually took root in the past. And our failure to hold firm is a visible display of thorns and thistles that shows the hardened dead earth of our hearts. Let me give another example, and we'll get to, to this part of the letter a couple months from now. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 says this. He says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Let me read that one again. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
that according to the author of Hebrews, Jesus' death on the cross has perfected, past tense, a group of people forever. That word perfected is the same word that we've looked at before with respect to Jesus as being made perfect. I think chapter 2 we looked at that. It's a Greek word that means to complete. That Jesus completed. He closed the books on our salvation at Calvary. would be another way to say chapter 10 verse 14. That the present tense sanctifying work of God in our lives is evidence that we are among those who were eternally perfected by the death of Christ. Again, going back to the farmland imagery, the sanctifying work of God in our lives is the fruit in the field that shows that something actually took root in the past. At this point, I think it's a perfectly fair question to ask, what do you do with the strong language of Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 5? Here's where I think context is so important. Um, Going back to the example, we talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago, the example of the wilderness generation in Israel. As a covenant community coming out of Egypt, the Israelites ate the Passover lamb. The Israelites experienced the powers of the age to come in God's parting of the Red Sea. The Israelites experienced the providence and grace of God in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of cloud uh, fire by night that led them toward the promised land. The Israelites tasted of the heavenly gift of manna. The Israelites tasted the goodness of God's word at Mount Sinai. Yet... The author of Hebrews tells us the tragic tale of what happened to the majority of that covenant community. They hardened their hearts in rebellion and they died in the desert. And sure, some of those were regenerate, some of those were not, but the spiritual experience was shared by every single one of them. And I would argue that the same is true of the visible church, that the visible church is filled with both kinds of farmland that you see in verses 7 and 8. Fields that have been made alive in Christ who will produce the fruit of perseverance to the end. And fields that over the course of time will reveal thorns and thistles that prove the earth below to be dead. And it's possible for both to share in the spiritual experiences of verses 4 and 5. To be enlightened, to hear, to understand, to have much insight on the things of God. To taste the heavenly gift, to experience in a very real way God's blessing. You actually experience that every time you're in this room to share in the Holy Spirit, to experience and see the Spirit at work in the church, to taste the goodness of the Word of God, to hear and be impacted by the Scriptures, to taste the powers of the age to come, maybe even cast out demons in Jesus' name. I can just hear Jesus saying, and this is a sobering thought, on that day, many of you will say to me, Lord, Lord, were we not enlightened to the things of God? Did we not experience in a very real way your blessing?" Did we not see and experience the Spirit at work in your church? Did we not hear and find the Scriptures to be impacting? Did we not do mighty works in your name? And then I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you fields of thorns and thistles. That's a sobering warning. Again, arguably the most sobering warning in all of the New Testament. One final question that I think is significant. Should those of us who believe that we're truly born again apply these warnings to our lives? I mean, are are verses 4 through 8 simply a a pause button for the two or three people who don't really know and follow Jesus to to have a wake-up call of sorts? And the rest of the verses all around the warning passages are for for you and me who profess to love and follow Jesus? Or are verses 4 through 8 for the saints as well? My answer to that question is, 
Yes and amen, absolutely, these verses are for the saints. Why do I say that? Well, think about it this way. The author of Hebrews, we're going to see this in just a second, he's going to communicate in verse 9 that he's confident of better things for these people. He's actually confident that they will persevere to the end. And yet when he sits down and puts pen to paper, chapter 1, verse 1, and begins to write this letter, he chooses to still include the warnings. He sees value in providing sobering warnings to those he's confident will persevere in the end. John Piper is very helpful here. He says this. He says, God's way to keep us from falling is by enticing us with promises and sobering us with warnings. The point of the promises is to engage our affections for the eternal glory of God. The point of the warnings is to disengage our affections from the perishing glory of this world. The point of the promises is to make our mouths water at the prospect of infinite happiness in God. And the point of the warnings is to make our hearts tremble at the prospect of falling under the wrath of God. And so the warnings of the Bible support our assurance. That according to Piper, the warnings don't threaten our assurance. They actually support our assurance. They're a means of God's grace. They compel us to keep fixing our eyes on Jesus. Verses 4 through 8 provide us with the warning. My guess would be, there are probably many in this room who are going, I have about a dozen questions that you failed to answer. Uh, There are uh, phrases in those verses that I want to hear more about. I want to hear you tease out. Let, Let me just say... That, that is an appropriate thing to feel right now. Um, let me explain. Uh, earlier this week, I read a 76-page scholarly paper on verses 4 through 8 alone. 76 pages. To put that in, in, in sermon context, that's the equivalent to 10 sermons worth of content. So to get after the fullness of verses 4 through 8, we would actually, I would have to preach Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8 till uh, roughly mid to late January. I don't want to do that. I don't think you want me to do that. Um, And so uh, some things I just have to leave them be and say this, that if you want access to that 76-page scholarly paper, I can get it to you. Find me after the service, tap me, say, put me on that list or shoot me an email. I'll I'll get you uh, that content. It gets down into the deep theological weeds on, on things that we just don't have time to get to this morning. Verses four through eight provide us with a warning As we move through the remaining verses, we now see the promise that's ours for the taking. Look at verse 9. It says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. In the midst of this call to persevere, the author of Hebrews brings this word of encouragement. He says, I don't think you're part of the category of people that I just described. Those things I just described don't necessarily belong to salvation. But when I look at you, I see evidence of fruit in the field. I see love for the Lord. I see love for his church. I I see the heart and generosity of a servant. These are the things that I see. There's an authentication of a root of faith in the lives of these people. He goes on to say in verse 11, And we desire that each uh, one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The, The author of Hebrews wants the recipients of this letter to not become lazy and complacent in their faith. He wants them to keep fighting the good fight of faith. These verses are pretty incredible to me, particularly 
um, the, the, first, the last part of verse 11, the first part of verse 12. They communicate that assurance, verse 11, actually produces not sluggishness, verse 12, but enduring faith. And now we close out this morning's passage with an example of this, of one who patiently walked in faith and inherited the promises of God. And we'll see this further as we work our way through this particular letter to its end. It says this in verse 13. It says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So going back to the book of Genesis, you can read about this um, in the book of Genesis. God made a promise to Abraham, I will bless you, I will multiply you, your descendants will be greater than the number of stars in the sky. And not just a promise, but an oath. God has no one to swear by who's greater than himself. So God made an oath based on the final court of appeal of himself to fulfill his promise to Abraham. He bound himself to his word by his character. God essentially said to Abraham, cross my heart, and he meant it. When God made a promise to Abraham, he irrevocably meant what he said, and Abraham believed him. And if you go back and you read the story of Abraham, you'll notice it's a story that puts on display the book of Hebrews quite well because Abraham's faith wasn't a one-time deal. Um, Abraham had to believe in, in the midst of old age, in the midst of a struggle with barrenness that God would provide a child to fulfill his promise. The ultimate test, Abraham once provided a child, had to believe um, that uh, and trust in God as he walked his son Isaac up the hill to the place where he would be sacrificed. And we know that God made good on that promise, providing a ram as a substitute so that Isaac might live. Abraham continued to walk in persevering faith. And God was true to his word. Verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That the, the providing of a substitute so that Isaac might live was a foreshadowing of something far greater. God's promise uh, to, to, uh, in, in the furthering of redemptive history, his greatest promise was in the providing of a substitute so that we might live, you and I. That God made a promise going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in a garden so very long ago to send a hero to rescue us from the darkened dragons of Satan, sin, and death. The entire Old Testament is a foreshadowing of that hero to come, and his name is Jesus. God promised Jesus so very long ago in the Bible so very long ago in human history. And he made good on that promise. And encouragement to press on in faith is that God is a promise keeper. He kept his promise. He sent his son. And we're told according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that all of God's promises, every single one of them, find their yes in Jesus. That's good news. He goes on to close out this section by saying this in verses 19 and 20. He says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
The picture here is is of Jesus who has entered the true holy of holies at the right hand of the majesty on high as our perfect high priest. He tore the temple curtain from top to bottom. We'll talk more about that in the chapters to come as we work our way through the rest of this letter. But ultimately, he's made a way into the presence and blessing of God for us. He secured God's promises for us. He entered into the presence of God in its fullness. And the author of Hebrews tells us that, think about this, Jesus is a forerunner on our behalf. What that means is that we will surely follow him into the everlasting presence of God. Isn't that good news after verses four through eight? That's an anchor capable of holding us in the fiercest storm this world could possibly hurl in our direction. The anchor holds. I love the words of an old hymn in 1902 by Daniel Towner, says this. He says, I can feel the anchor fast as I meet each sudden blast. And the cable, though unseen, bears the heavenly strain between. Through the storm I safely ride till the turning of the tide, and it holds. My anchor holds. Blow your wildest then, O gale, on my bark so small and frail. By his grace I shall not fail. For my anchor holds, my anchor holds. Wish I'd given that to James early enough in the week that he could have done something cool with it. Because I just kind of want to sing it. I really do believe this passage is a beautiful articulation of of both sides of this doctrine of, of the perseverance of the saints. It provides us with both the promise and the warning. The promise, all who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere to the end. The anchor holds, verses 9 through 20. And only those who persevere to the end have truly been born again. The warning, verses 4 through 8. One thing is certain, regardless, and I alluded to this earlier, regardless of where you land in your interpretation of this morning's passage, and I hope there's space for us to to disagree on this, and to, to dialogue and to wrestle with it. But the takeaway is one and the same. If you believe you can lose your salvation, what do you do? You fight tooth and nail to keep seeing and savoring Jesus, right? And if you believe in the perseverance of the saints, what do you do? Sit around and twiddle your thumbs because of a profession of faith in the past tense? No, you persevere by continuing to see and savor Jesus, period. Far from a passage that should divide the church, A passage like this actually has the power to unite the church, to rally the saints together in the name of a common cause. And that common cause is the commitment to fight with and for one another to see and savor Jesus Christ. Going back to that picture of my daughter on the beach, if you're new, I'll just briefly give that to you. If you're not new, I'm sorry if you're tired of it, but... I think this is, this is just significant in putting a bow on this thing. When my family, we were at the beach about a month or two ago. My daughter saw the moon for the first time, and she lost her ever-loving mind. She'd only seen it in pictures. She'd only seen it in books, in movies. She saw it for the first time in all of its glory, and she couldn't shut up about it. That happened on a Wednesday. Thursday, I thought we were done with it, but we weren't because she just kept looking up into the sky and declaring the glory and excellency of the moon yet again. 
And I'm sitting there going, baby, we did that yesterday. And she's going, I know, Daddy, today, as long as it's called today in the language of the author of Hebrews. And today is a new day, so I'm going to behold and declare. That's the heartbeat of the book of Hebrews, that, that we behold the superior Son of God and we fight tooth and nail for and with one another to help one another behold the superior Son of God in all of his glory and excellency. So my prayer is that we would leave here with arms linked, committed to that cause.